we're going to jump into this passage, John 10. I think there's some Bibles in the back if we want to grab them. And don't hesitate. This was just purchased last night at 2.30 a.m. at Walmart. Because when you're on like a 900-mile drive, you leave your Bibles weird places. So um, I'm apparently part of the Gideon tribe in leaving Bibles in different places all over. They're usually marked up. People don't want them, but they're there. So grab a Bible. This one's brand new. Um, and we'll jump into John 10, 22 through 39. Now, as we move in here, this is a fascinating passage to me because one of the things that it begins to kind of um, reveal is this tension that happens. And so I want to invite you to take a journey, take kind of a walk into a time in life where your whole life was waiting on a response or an answer. So you're waiting on, how many of y'all have tried to buy a house, you've applied for it, you've put in stuff, and you're waiting to see, are we going to get it? Are they going to accept the offer? And every phone call, I mean, every meeting that you're in, you're going, this could be my realtor. This could be my, I got to go. I got I mean, no matter what. And so everything's going to change with this one phone call. How about a job? You're kind of waiting constantly for that job to call you, offer you that job. It's going to shift. Maybe you have to move. Maybe you have to go, go across country. There's massive shifts. And so your whole life is in this tension. It's in this point where you're just waiting for what's going on. I have a lot of friends that adopt, and they're constantly waiting on this. In fact, one of them has this just hilarious story of where he was waiting in his office, waiting for the call, and he gets this phone call. They said, hey, uh, you got to come now. Like, he goes, I I got a huge meeting. You got to come now. You got to be in Waco in two hours. You got to leave now. His whole life changed. He shows up, they're twins. They didn't tell him that. And so he's at the hospital and he's like, uh, I gotta go to Babies R Us. And like he's running to get thing because he's like, I only have one car seat unless they can double up. And so he's just like running all over. The, and his whole life shifted with this one phone call that he's waiting for. And when we look at this story, that's where I want you to connect in with. Is I want you to find in you where your heart was in this angst, this tension, this like, this is going to shift my life. This is going to change everything. I want to collide that idea with, with Neartown's vision of rest for the weary. Um, just to be honest, when Pastor Russell told me that, he said, yeah, our vision's rest for the weary. I'm like, do people, okay? Uh, like, I mean, I kind of went, I don't, I don't really, it sounds good. Are people drawn to, yeah, man. It's, and then I read passages like this, and my soul just rests. My soul, what it looks like for your soul to rest. And the only, I, I don't think a lot of us can even connect with that. What it looks like for your soul to rest. The only weird image that I could even imagine what this is like is when I would mow when I was growing up, I would, I, I hated mowing. I'd get so hot and just worn out and just, I, so what I, and then I, I, my mom would go, hey, we got a pool, so you should just swim right afterwards. So then I would mow and then go inside and switch into my bathing suit. Well, then I'm like, I'm not hot anymore. And so it was like, that was dumb. So the brilliant me decided, I'm going to mow in my swimsuit. And so I would mow, and it was literal, like, <laughs> like a meat, just drop the mower, still going, and just right into the pool. And that immense relief of just, oh, this, that feeling, it only lasts like a brief second, but totally worth it. And what's it look like for your soul to feel that? 
What's it look like for the deepest inner part of you to feel that massive relief? Let's jump in and read 22 through 29. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Let's stop there. So what's happening? You have these angry Jewish leaders that begin to press in around him. They want to know more. They're constantly trying to figure out more information. And they ask this question. Now, when I just read this, went, how long will you keep us in suspense? It really didn't grab me. And then I started looking more and more at their language and what they were asking. In the, in the language that they were saying, they said, how long will you hold up my soul? How long are you going to hold my future? How long are you going to hold my soul up? How long are you going to keep me from getting... Uh, you have some fast... And so this, this phrasing of how long will you hold up my soul begin to just rattle me. How long will you hold up my soul? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. How long will you, what they're asking is my religious system, everything I know is now colliding into who you are. Every way I've lived, every way I've done, every part of me, all of my history is now colliding into who Jesus is. And so he's pleased, how long are you going to hold up my soul? Because if what you say is true, I'm going to have to die to everything that I've known and done. If what you say is false, you have to die. And so he begins to have this chasm where they're going, something crazy is going to happen here. And this is the question, this is that confrontation that the gospel puts is one of the two of us is going to have to die. It's either going to have to be my spirit, my history, my way of thinking, my lifestyle, everything about me, or it's going to have to be Jesus. And when that becomes your tension, now you understand a little bit of why their soul was held up. We're, we're going to have to murder this guy because of what he says, or everything that I am is going to have to die. Now it makes a little bit more sense of why they're going, why are you holding up my soul? Why, why are you putting this tension here? Why are you creating this barrier in my life. This begins to unpack so much with this. This begins to make all of this passage make sense. And so one of the things I want to ask you is, believers, near town church, Christian, when do you ask this question? How long will you hold up my soul? Because I think one of the things that we need is we're going to hear rest for the weary for the lost, but we're also going to hear rest for the weary for believers, for Christians. And I don't know about you, but I'm one that I ask this question, how long will you hold up my soul? That tension just comes into being whenever I mess up massively. How many in, you, how many in here, and don't raise your hand, have done something that you thought, I would never do? I didn't think I would ever do something like that. I just didn't. I'm not that person. I'm not. I'm, I, gosh. And then the enemy starts digging in deeper going, would a believer do that? There's no way somebody who loves Jesus would do that. 
And you just sit in your room, and I've, I've had these where it's like, there's no, if you believed who Jesus was, you wouldn't have done that. So you're not, a, you're not saved. You don't love him. You don't, and it's just like he just begins to just, just dig in. And that's when I start, that's when the soul begins just going, oh, uh, just this tension. That's when it makes sense to go, now why are you holding up my soul? Why is this tension? Why is this happening? What is going on here? Is when you mess up big time. The other thing that happens so often that I think my soul gets hung up is when I can't comprehend something about God. I can't seem to put the pieces together. So this is more for the logical-minded people that want reasoning, that want understanding, that want everything to make sense in the Bible, that want it all spelled out. And when it doesn't seem to comprehend, you begin to go, on, okay, wait, 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 there's some, there's some weird things. If God loves us, why is he allowing all of this brokenness? If God loves us, why is he allowing school shootings? Why is he allowing Katrina? Why is he allowing 9-11? Why? If, if God, why? And so some good-hearted Christian steps in and says, well, let me understand, Jesus suffered, so we suffered. But you're going, no, 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 wait, it doesn't work for me. And you begin to question, if God's good, why does he allow all of my miscarriages? If God's good, why is he constantly allowing me to date the most horrible men ever? If God, and so you begin to have these tensions, and you begin to just be frustrated with this. God, how long will you hold up my soul? How long will you hold it in suspense? For some of us also, it's when you just begin to get this numb Christianity. You ever wonder, it's like, why don't I want to read the Bible? I should, if I love Jesus, I would want to read the Bible. I would want to do, I would want to go to church. Church is a chore right now. Church is a beating right now. I don't even want to be... People start using Christian language. I'm annoyed immediately. They say, bless you, brother. I'm like, ugh. Like, it just constantly. I just don't want to be around it. Everything annoys me, every part of it. And you begin to, again, the enemy starts going, no, no, no. If you loved it, you, would, you wouldn't have that numb feeling. You would want to. You wouldn't be apathetic. You wouldn't have these lulls. If you'd just be passionate. When I read about Paul, he doesn't seem to have the lulls. He seems to be passionate. And you would, too, if you loved Jesus. And so you begin to go, how long will you hold my soul in Suspense, how long will you hold up my soul? And then we see that our culture and our city is asking the same questions. They don't have the language. They're not throwing it out there, but they constantly are wondering, why is the brokenness? Why is this world like this? What's going to fix this? What's my next step? And a lot of them are answering the question with all other kinds of things, trying to answer that question. How long will you hold up my soul? And they begin to throw anything and everything they possibly can to answer that question. And their biggest way, and the enemy loves this, Satan loves this, is to distract them, to pull them over into all kinds of other things where they don't even think to ask the question, what about my soul? But our culture, our community, our schools, our world around us is asking this, how, how long is my soul going to be in this tension? And we see it when bad things happen. They begin to ask questions. They don't ask questions because they can fill their life with so many things, and then something pauses it. A natural disaster pauses it, and they begin to go, wait, 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 let me, it must be bigger. It must be, and so it's paused for a week, two weeks, a month, and they're asking questions, and all of a sudden, they don't get the answer, and massive rush, and their life is filled again, and they just go on. 
So we ourselves as believers are asking the same question the Jewish leaders are. In our culture, our city, our surroundings, they're asking the exact same question. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Fascinating that he goes, tell us plainly. And that's the most confusing thing ever. Like, I mean, everything in there, it's like, wait, tell us plainly. Jesus is like, I'm not going to do it. Like, here we go. Here's going to be some crazy stuff. And so he begins to throw it out there. And he uses these analogies of going, my sheep here. I didn't feel like he answered the question. How long are you going to hold up my soul? And he goes, here's the thing. So he gives rest first to believers. So for the people listening around that how long are you going to hold up my soul, for those in here that have asked that, that you've messed up so bad that you're wondering, a believer wouldn't do that, a Christian wouldn't do that. He begins to tell him, wait, wait, wait. I told you, and you didn't understand, you didn't believe me, and here's why. It's because people who have rest for your soul, they're my flock, they know me, I know them. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. That that quiet voice, that sometimes loud voice, they hear my voice and it rests my soul. They hear me speak plainly. So this is going to be so clear for believers. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So for people in here that are in that question of, Am I say, am I a believer? What's going on? Why is my soul in suspense? Why are you holding up my soul? The question then kind of unravels, kind of unfolds, and he begins to say, wait, for those who believe this, you'll know this because you hear my voice, you hear the scriptures, you hear what God says, you hear the text, you are known by me. Interesting, it doesn't flip it the other way. You know me. He says, I know them. I know them. I know you. God's saying, I know you. It changes it going, how much do you know him? How much do you know him? I know you. So in my biggest doubt, my biggest question, my biggest wonder, my biggest just frustration, God's going, I know you. It doesn't matter if your head's full of stuff. I know you. You, you hear my voice and you obey me. You listen to me. You respond to me. Keep on going. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. This is interesting too. This is in what they call just the the present tense that's continual. Present continual because it's saying eternal life can't be later. If you have eternal life, it starts then. And so he's going, I'm giving you this eternal life, which starts now. It begins to change everything that you worry about. If eternal life starts after you die, you have a lot of stuff to worry about before death. You have a lot of stuff to figure out. But if eternal life starts now, it changes everything that you live. 
It changes every way that you interact. It changes every relationship that you have. It changes how you interact with Jesus. It changes how you interact with your church. It changes how you interact with your community. Because it begins to happen now. And then he says this really fast, and we sang it in, I think, two of the songs. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This was massive to me, and this is what gives my soul rest more than anything. I'd always read this, no one's going to snatch them out of my hand, and I'm sitting there kind of like looking. I mean, I've been on a picnic. I know what it's like when a bird comes and eats your food. Like like I have this image of that's what it's going to be like. I'm just going to be walking, and then a Satan bird's going to just take me out of nowhere. And so... Like, I have this image of what's going on. And, and then it kind of hit me going, wait, wait, wait. When no one can take them out of the hand, that means I can't screw up enough either. Because I'm the no one. I'm the no one. I can't, I can't sin so bad. I can't have so many doubts. I can't think so bad about whatever it is that I move my way. I've always read that. No one can snatch it. So it's like kind of looking around and then I'm like, well, wait, what about me? And then it was like this inner look and this fear and this pain of me. But when I see no one can snatch them out of the hand, I'm a part of that no one. I can't even convince myself to get out of salvation. I can't even convince myself. I can't word my way out of it. Which changed everything for me. Like, you want to talk about mowing in a 102-degree temperature, jumping in the pool, that's that soul relief. And no matter how much, no matter how many times I want to reason it out, and here's the sad part. I've even reasoned how to figure this out of different reasons. Like, I'll even go, wait, 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 no, this passage must have been talking. And just plain as can be, no one is snatching them out of my hand. No one is taking, you yourself can't talk your way out of salvation. You can't think your way out of salvation. You can't behave your way out of salvation when you are known by God. So for some of us, that that relieves you. For some of us, our worst times are in our bed all alone thinking, there's no way if I love Jesus, I would have lived like I did today. There's no way I would have treated her like that. There's no way I would have said that. There's no way I would have made that happen. And you just need to hear today, rest for the weary. You need to hear, no one can snatch you out of his hand. Reword that. You can't be bad enough to get out of his hand. You can't convince yourself to leave. No one can do it. Because the other side would be like, well, God can take Satan out. He can just whip all the other demons. He can do all that. But I'm strong enough to get out. Like now you kind of put yourself in that place to go, I can get myself out of his hand. And that's massive rest for your soul. Verse 30. So he finally answers him plainly. So he threw all of that stuff in and then he says, so you want to know what you were asking. How long are you, hold, who, are you the Christ? He said, I and the Father are one. His claim is, I am God. Me and the one that you know everything about, me and 
all the Old Testament scripture that you've memorized and everything that you obey and all the stuff that he's talked about, some guy coming, all of this stuff, me and him, same guy. Same, he, now, now the tension's happened. Now the tension's happened. They're cool with hearing all that other stuff. They're on board with, okay, got it. Are you the Christ? Well, let me, let me kind of explain some stuff. Like, you don't really get this. You hear my voice. You obey me. They're going, I'm in on the obedience. I mean, we're really obedient people up in here. You should come into the temple. We do some cool stuff. And so you should see how all of this unfolds. And then no one can snatch him out of hand. Cool, that's, it kind of sounds like what God was talking about with covenant. I'm on board with this. I mean, they're walking through this going, I think we're okay. And then Jesus said, and I and the Father are one. We're the same God. And they're like, now you've done it. And they pick up stones, and it's kind of like, you were cool, you made the last phrase, now you die. And there's this constant confrontation. There's tension. And, and what I just read that, and I go, oh, cool. Like, and I just kind of get excited about I and the Father are one. That's like big theological passages. We should kind of frame this out and have big meetings about this. And I mean, all this stuff. But what I miss is this was a verse that apparently the Jews were okay with everything else, but that phrase seemed to put this massive, massive collision in their heart. And so one of the questions out is, when you read that, does it put a collision in your heart? Does it put a tension in your heart? Does it put this, why do you hold my soul in suspense? Why do you uphold my soul? Does that verse raise that up in you? And as it begin to see that and unfold it and begin to push this in, It's this massive beauty of saying everything you've read through the Old Testament, I'm fulfilling it. The creator, and so make it just really plain and simple. The creator, the one that you walk out in this world and you see everything he's done and the one who sustains everything and the one who's spun the world into existence and the one who is with all of the Old Testament, the one who is with all of those things, me and him, we're on the same, and now they begin to go, wait, wait, you're here, like, you're on earth, you're teaching these things, you're saying these things, you're making these things, and this collision begins to happen in their soul even more, and this is going to make sense as we keep reading. 31 through 39, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Like, this scene, I just kind of want to be hanging out in this scene, it seems Funny to, I'm sure Jesus didn't think it's funny, but I think it's like this funny scene that's taking place where there's this tension that's going on where it's like, who are you? Are you the Christ? Tell me plainly. Well, let me tell you some other stuff. And then that last phrase, I and the Father are one. Then they pick up stones and they're like, this guy's going to die. And Jesus responds to him, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, the scripture, and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works 
that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Let's sum up what kind of what happened there. So Jesus comes in. They're going to stone him for saying, I'm God. And they said, wait, wait, wait. Jesus goes, so what, are, what, what exactly are you going to kill me for? Are you going to kill me because I said that I'm God? Or, or what's kind of going on? They said, yeah, we're, or, or the works that I do that show that I'm God. And he goes, we're going to kill you because you are, black, you are claiming to be God. And he uses, I never understood that phrasing. He uses a kind of an interesting language here where he pulls on Psalm 86.2. And he says, wait, wait, wait. So even God in the scripture uses this phrase, God, to talk about human judges. And so Jesus says, wait, wait, wait. Even God called men gods. Check it out. He's like, go read your Bible. Like it's in there. And so you'll see. So what are you going to kill me for? What, what's happening here? And then he throws this fascinating phrase out there. He says, so if you don't believe my words, then go look what I do. Like if my words are just messing with your heads to think that I'm God, go look at what I do. If, if the things that I teach, if the times that I preach just mess your mind up, then go look when I healed people, when I cast demons out, when I walked on water, when I fed a bunch of people. Go look at that. And this is when it made so much sense to me, this rest for the weary in our community. Is that even for Jesus, and, and I love preaching, there's this massive need to preach and to teach and to share the gospel and for people to gather and hear the teaching and training of what it looks like to obey scripture. But even Jesus saying, some people preaching and teaching is not gonna work. We need to go out, be in our community, be in our world, be in our culture, and begin to show them the power of what it looks like to redeem our city. He says, for some of you, which one are you going to stone me for? For doing things that God would do or for preaching and saying the things that God would say? Which one are you going to take up? And it fascinates me how many times that we think that there's just this one way that if we reach the world, we got to plant churches everywhere and they just got to be preaching the gospel. And even Jesus is saying, no, 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 wait. There's certain people that aren't going to understand the teaching. They need to see the gospel making a difference. They need to see the gospel at work. They need to see the gospel begin to go into areas and transcend areas and redeem areas and completely renew areas. It's this massive, beautiful thing for me. When I was a church planner, we used the phrases air war and ground war. So we talked about going into a city, we used the phrases air war and ground war. Air war was the preaching and teaching of Jesus, and we were like all on board for air war. We love air war. We constantly love air war. And, and the fact of the matter is, churches all around our culture, especially down here in the South, is saturated with air war. I think there's like four radio stations at any time of day. You can hear more and more air war, air war, more preaching, more teaching, more, you can 
do podcasts anywhere. There's churches everywhere talking about their air war. They're talking about their air war. What we don't see is the ground war where we have believers, groups, teams on the ground redeeming their city, engaging the lost, engaging schools. And I love this concept that Jesus is talking about here is some of you are going to struggle to believe the preaching but some of you need to see and you can just rest on the fact of seeing the gospel begin to shape and change. Not too long ago, I was um, at a coffee shop and just struck up a conversation with a guy. And um, one of the things, we started talking about what do you do and he told me what he does and he goes, what do you do? And I said, well, basically, I do trainings and city renewal And he goes, what does that mean? And I went, basically, I go into an area, and I want to make it more like heaven than hell when I leave. And he goes, oh, that's awesome. Like, totally not a believer. Everything about him, he doesn't care. But in his heart and his soul, he's like, I even want that. Like, I want my kids to run around outside and be able to play in my front yard without fear of what's going to happen. I want to be able to park my car in the Walmart and leave my backpack without fear that it's going to get jacked. I want to live, like, I want that. So what would it look like? I want my schools to be better. I don't want to have to worry about what happens when my kid goes off to school. I don't want my kids to have to get to fifth grade, and then we have to move to a different city so that they can actually have a good junior high and high school. I want, so what I'm going to do is go in and make my community more like heaven than hell. Because all around us feels like hell. And the problem with our culture, the problem with our city, the problem with a lot of our neighbors is they're seeing air war all around and there's no ground war and so they're getting really frustrated and their soul's beginning to be upheld going, I just don't get it. If we have churches on every corner, why do our school school districts stink? Why is all of our area, all of our neighborhood, why is it just falling apart? Why are we more in debt than ever before? Why constantly are we seeing marriages just ripped apart? And we have this lack of ground war go into our city, go into our community, go into our culture, and begin to let the gospel transcend. Begin to allow the gospel to move in and cultivate and change. I love that Jesus says this. It gives so much more understanding to everything else. And so often we have this mono view of Jesus, which is that he preached and he teached and then he took off. We don't see that he preached, he taught, he communicated, and then he went into the cities and engaged and changed and saw life happen. He trained his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples changing the cities, engaging the cities. And so I go back and just ask that question that the Jews did. How long will you hold up my soul? How long are you going to hold my soul in suspense? And so two sides to this. Believers, some of you in here, you're asking that. You're frustrated. You have this tension you're wanting, I mean, I, there was a sad part of church work that we had when I was on staff at a church, they had this youth camp. We always talked about this guy, I'm going to, new name, um, Michael, that's not, but they had this guy named Michael, we called it the Michael effect, 
because we were guaranteed three salvations a year because Michael was coming. He was going to get saved at youth camp. He was going to get saved at Disciple Now, and then one random Wednesday night. Like, we didn't know which one. And so we had this, what we called the Michael effect. So we knew, well, that boosts our numbers. That church had 21 salvations of the same guy, um, junior high through high school. It was awesome. Like, that's, we needed that because it helped our numbers. Like, it was just incredible to have Michael in your youth group. But the sad part is, is sadly it was a joke to us. And what we missed is that his soul every time said, I'm not a believer, I'm not saved. He lived in fear. He lived with the question of how long are you going to hold up my soul? So it's one thing for believers to ask it. It's another thing when our culture and our community and our cities and our neighborhoods asking it, and we don't even think about it. And we just keep on going, well, let's keep preaching, let's keep teaching. No, let's get into our communities. Let's get into our neighborhoods. I love what Near Town's moving into to begin to impact the school and begin to see this happen because it's exactly what Jesus is talking about, seeing this massive infiltration into the cities. We always love to set up things, and church communities love to set up things. When a disaster happens, we're going to move in and take care of it. And it's always reactionary. It's always once this happens, we move in. It's never we have the relationships already built. Therefore, when it happens, we can just continue doing what we've already done. We can continue pouring in. We continue developing relationships. We continue to make this happen. We begin to see schools and cities and everything transform. One last story. Um, I work with a group of guys who went into a neighborhood that was a high-end Expensive neighborhood to live in. Incredible things were happening in terms of just their movement and seeing all this stuff. It was a Christian community. Um, like everybody went to church, I think, except for all of them. And then so they would go there and they would see this impact and they would be a part of it. When they started finding out there was this massive group of junior high girls who were getting pregnant just constantly. So they started researching it, started going in, started asking questions. And almost everybody, double-income family. So mom and dad were there. Well, the junior high got out at 245. The high school didn't get out at 345. So, you know, safe neighborhood. So you can just walk home and just hang out with whoever and whatever guy you want and just kind of go into your house. I mean, this was beginning. So they began to research this. They began to see it. They began to find out what was going on in their neighborhood and their cities. And then they start trying to figure out, and everybody's going, well, why junior high instead of high school? I mean, they're doing all of this research, and what they realized was junior high wasn't smart enough to buy things that fixed that problem of getting pregnant. High school was. Just follow it. Just go along with this. And they begin to see this. So what they ended up doing was asking questions, asking the community, asking the families, how can we impact? How can we help? How can we see this happen? And they ended up starting a after-school hangout, just training. They would do personality profile training. They would do homework things. They would do kind of setting you up. They'd do physical boot camps. They set up all of this stuff. The only thing that it took for your kid to go is once every three weeks, the dad had to have a 30-minute Chick-fil-A dinner with one of the leaders. And all they wanted to do was talk about your kid. All they wanted to do is go, hey, we just want to talk about your kid. We just want to tell you how awesome they are, what they're doing, what they're learning, what they're... Over the last four years, they've seen the pregnancy rate drop by about 42%.
They've seen this cult, these people asking questions. Why? Why did you do this? Why did you care? Because we wanted to make this look more like heaven than hell. The goal wasn't a church growth strategy, but the three churches in the neighborhood grew by about two to 300 people. They just said, we're going to make a difference in our community, and when we begin to make this difference, we're going to see the gospel, and then you're going to see the air war, ground war take effect, and we're going to see this massive gospel transformation. So I want to just ask the question one more time. How long will you hold my soul? How long will you keep my soul in suspense? Rest for the weary makes so much sense. But if we expect just for people to come here and get the rest for the weary, we're going to miss on half the mission. What's it look like to move and engage?